Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Simon Long, The Economist's finance editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. Coming up on this programme, who would really benefit from a £10 minimum wage? The people that will be put out of work will be the ones who are the lowest skilled and probably were the lowest paid before. It's not clear that it's going to really help those people. The cult of Warren Buffett in China. It's much more of a casino in China than it is in developed markets. But that hasn't stopped a whole range of investors from either being called or calling themselves the Warren Buffetts of China. And an investigation into the gender gap in economics. Economics is now less female than chemistry, and it's less female even than maths. I think it does matter because of the role economists play in policy making. The British election campaign is now well and truly underway, with voters going to the polls in June, so it's the perfect time for bold promises. What good is it if people are working and getting poorer and don't share in the profits of that economy? Our offer, a £10 living wage for all workers. That's the Labour Party's Jeremy Corbyn pledging to raise the minimum wage to £10 an hour by 2020. According to him, it would be a lifeline for low earners who are struggling to get by. But would the policy really benefit those it's intended to help? Our Britain economics correspondent, Callum Williams, joins me now to discuss the proposal. Hello, Callum. Hello, Simon. A bit of history first. I mean, a national minimum wage was only introduced in Britain in 1999, That's I think. right, yeah. It was very controversial at the time, but now it's, it's part of the furniture, right? Nobody wants to remove it. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, as you say, uh, at the time, there were really blood-curdling forecasts of what was going to happen when it was introduced in 1999. We, as a newspaper, were pretty on the sceptical side. Some people were saying there were going to be, you know, millions put out of work. And actually, it's gone up and up and up since 1999 in relation to average earnings. And it's coincided with, you know, a real employment boom. So no one can really suggest now that the minimum wage is causing much extra unemployment. And this wouldn't be the first change, as you suggest, in, in recent years. But how, how does it differ from what the, the, the government is proposing? Yes. So in April 2016, the government introduced a quite significantly higher minimum wage, which it rebranded as the national living wage. The plan there is for it to go up from £7.20 last year to around £9 an hour by 2020. Now, Corbyn is saying £10 an hour by 2020. So it is actually quite a significant rise. One could say it is justified. It would presumably help the low paid. There's a couple of things to consider. The first is... Is it going to cause extra unemployment? The people that will be put out of work will be the ones who are the lowest skilled and probably were the lowest paid before. So if you're thinking about targeting the very low paid, it's not clear that it's going to really help those people. I mean, the other thing to bear in mind is the question of it's important with this kind of thing to distinguish between workers or employees, i.e. the actual people who get the minimum wage on the one hand, then on the other hand, households. And the strange thing about the minimum wage is that the people at the very bottom of the UK's income distribution don't really work that often, they don't work that much. So they will see not really that much of a benefit from a higher minimum wage, whereas the household decile that benefits the most is the seventh, so towards the top. And that's basically because you have perhaps a a husband or a wife who's in a really kind of well-paying job and then 
the partner is in a sort of low paying, perhaps a part time cleaning job or, or something like that. So if you're thinking about let's kind of help the people with the lowest incomes in society. The minimum wage is a surprisingly bad way of going about it. And how, how popular is it? Is there evidence from polls that raising it would be popular? You do get people who say that it would cause, you know, massive unemployment. But I think generally speaking, it's one of the most popular Labour Party policies, a bit like renationalising the railways. It's something that people instinctively say, this is a good thing. So you're saying people instinctively say it, but they're wrong. What would be a more effective way of helping the lower paid? The way that economists and we have tended to favour recently is this concept of tax credits, which essentially are sort of top-ups that the state provides for low-income people. Now, these are sort of helpful for a few reasons. One, if they're designed properly, they shouldn't sort of disincentivize people from being in work in the first place. But I guess more important for this discussion is the idea that they don't really price workers out of jobs because the sort of extra cost is not borne by the employer, but is borne by the state because it's the state that pays the tax credits. And you can target them quite ni- nicely at the lowest income households because you can sort of decide who gets them and, and who doesn't. Now, the problem is in the UK is that the government has been really kind of cutting back on these tax credits drastically because they are quite expensive. Now, let's say Corbyn gets into power. We, one would presume that he would undo these cuts. But what he's focused on is this quite emotional issue of a £10 minimum wage. It's a nice round number. It's very easy to understand. And so that's why he's gone for it. But if he was really keen about helping the sort of lowest paid people in the UK, he would actually not be focusing on this, but would be focusing on tax credits. And if I've got it right, you're suggesting that uh, increasing the minimum wage would increase unemployment and hence poverty. So uh, is there any work done on by how much? What's strange is that uh, labour market economists have been surprised again and again and again with how far you can push up a minimum wage without resulting in unemployment. So in the article this week, we do give some estimates from the official forecasts produced by the government. But, you know, going back to 99, the minimum wage was roughly 45% of median earnings. Now it's kind of 55, 56, 57% around that sort of area. Unemployment is now in the UK at below 5%. I mean, it's really, really low. So clearly, there is a point at which unemployment will rise. But no one can seem to be able to say it is at this point that it's unsustainable. And it just keeps going up and up and up. And people seem to be amazed with how resilient the labour market is. Callum Williams, thank you very much. Thank you. So what do you think? Would you like to see a £10 minimum wage? Get in touch. We're at Economist Radio on Twitter. And you can send emails to radio at economist.com. This weekend sees the annual meeting in Omaha of Berkshire Hathaway, the company of the famed American investor Warren Buffett. One surprising place where this will be closely watched is China. Looking for inspiration, a new generation of Chinese investors have built something of a cult of personality around the 86-year-old billionaire. The reasons why say something about the deficiencies of China's own stock markets. Our Asia economics editor, Simon Rabinovich, joins me now from Shanghai. Hello, Simon. So could I start by asking you, is Warren Buffett really unusually popular in China, say more so than other rich foreigners like Bill Gates, Carlos Slim? There are a a variety of of rich foreigners who are popular in China, but Buffett does seem to be unusually popular. I think it's partly because his wealth, you know, derives from investment in in China. Uh, The stock market is a very big thing. There's lots of investors who uh, fancy themselves as being sort of the second comings of Warren Buffett. 
And that was my next question, in fact. Are there any genuine Chinese Warren Buffetts? Are there, are there comparable stock market investors who've made fortunes? There are fewer stock market investors in, in China who've made fortunes. There's a lot of investors who've lost fortunes in the Chinese stock market. It's much more of a, of a roller coaster or a casino in China than it is in developed markets. But that hasn't stopped a whole range of investors from uh, either being called or calling themselves the Warren Buffetts of China. But when you actually look at their methodology and the way they invest, uh, and their cash flow, it's, it is actually difficult to uh, draw parallels between them and Berkshire Hathaway, uh, Buffett's holding company, a lot more debt laden in their approach to investing. And they just don't have the same long term track record that, that Buffett does. It's two years now, I suppose, since the world got really worried about China's stock markets and the impact of a potential crash. Uh, has much been done since then to, to stabilize it to ease fears? Well, the market certainly has been stabilized. As you know, it's often been uh, through the the force of regulation and official kind of state-sanctioned buying that the market has been supported. So it's less rocky than it was in 2015, but there's still concern that, you know, were the state to actually remove its support for the market, that it would would get back to uh, the big ups and downs that have marked its two and a half decades of existence. The new uh, top regulator for the securities uh, industry, Liu Shiryu, has come out uh, over the past year leading a campaign targeting many of the investors who style themselves as Buffett's, talking about them as crocodiles of the capital market, people who uh, exploit the retail investors, uh, drive up the value of stocks and then sell out once they're at a peak. So if this kind of heavy-handed regulatory approach does manage to clean up the market, it could actually create space for the kinds of people who style themselves as value investors who really would be more Buffett-like in the market. For the time being, you know, the government just has so much control over the market that it's actually very difficult for a true Buffett-like player to emerge. And what about small retail investors? Are, are their numbers continuing to grow fast or, or was was the slump in 2015 a big deterrent? The nature of the retail investor mindset in China is that when the going is good, lots of people pile in. uh, And then when there's a big crash, people develop an aversion to the stock market, which lasts for quite a while. So we're still sort of in in that kind of long slump after the crash where uh, retail investors have been less active. They've been turning away from the market. But, uh, you know, were the market to heat up again, it wouldn't be surprising if we if we saw retail investors, mom and pop investors beginning to pile in again. So, I mean, one of the things the government has been doing to try to put the market on more stable footing is to try to bring more institutional money into the market. This is a long, long term game plan. And I think it's worth remembering that this is a stock market that's only been around since the early 1990s. So it's not even uh, three decades old. It, it does take time for it to mature. What other reforms are, are in the works uh, and what, what is their direction? Is it towards a, a more open, un, unsupported market or one with greater government intervention? The overarching aim is to make it a more modern, sophisticated market in which the government does not have to intervene regularly. To get there, though, it's a very, very bumpy process. So, you know, first in terms of opening it up to to foreign investors, there's still very limited quotas and channels through which foreign investors are able to access the market. As for domestic investors, you know, they began to create tools that would allow domestic investors to hedge their investments and to short the market as well if they thought it was overvalued. But as soon as they ran into trouble in 2015, they began to roll back a lot of those measures. So what we've seen 
over the last half year is they're gradually beginning to to reintroduce them, but they're they're very afraid of of truly allowing market forces to um, you know to be unfurled because were that to happen, it's a market that they couldn't control, which is then anathema to the the type of control over the economy that the government consistently tries to exercise here. So it's back and forth, back and forth. Simon Rubinovich, Asia Economics Editor, thank you for joining us from Shanghai. Thank you. Now, the 21st century has seen women breaking through in earnest into the traditionally male-dominated academic field of economics. But the gender gap remains wide. Might that still be adversely affecting policy? Our economics correspondent, Samaya Keynes, has been on the road and spoke with Sarah Smith, head of the economics department at the University of Bristol, about what still needs to be done. Sarah, recently you've been thinking about this problem of women in economics. How big is the problem? So we started looking at the proportion of women doing economics at undergraduate level. Taking just economics, one in four of those students is a woman. Economics with other things, and it's slightly higher, but it's still only one in three. Economics is now less female than chemistry, and it's less female even than math. So I think we should start to think that something is going on with economics and something is unattractive about economics to female students. And women actually do better than men. When they get to university. Yeah, so I mean, I, I didn't know this before we kind of started looking into it. So on average, uh, female students are more likely to get a 2-1 or a 1st than male students. And the gap is actually greater in economics than it is in other subjects. So, of course, I guess you've got some selection going on. So maybe the women who do choose economics are particularly motivated or particularly good. But still, you know, we can't say that women don't do economics because they're not going to do well at it. Because if you look at the ones that do it, they do do well at it. So, you know, maybe they're, they, they perceive it's a subject they're going to find challenging. But, you know, it's hard to think that they believe that economics is more challenging than math. So I think it may be to do with the way the subject is presented or what they perceive economics to be about. Why does it matter that fewer women do economics? Do women have different views when they become economists? As economists, we tend, you know, we believe that people have preferences and they're trying to maximise, you know, their, their, their welfare. And, you know, maybe we should just accept that, you know, women don't like economics and they're perfectly entitled to choose what they want. But I think it does matter because of the role economists play in policy making. So they're economists in government departments, economists in central banks, making or advising on decisions that really matter for you know the lives of kind of millions of people and we know from other research that male and female economists have different views they agree on the fundamentals of economics but they do tend to disagree on for example the possibility of government intervention to make people's lives better or you know whether for example the job market is equally you know favorable to males and females so if you've got a kind of a government economic service which is drawing from a very male-dominated pool of students, you might well end up with a set of advisors who are systematically giving different advice. So I think that's why it has wider social implications as well as the consequences for the students themselves. What should we do about it? We think we're beginning to understand what it is. You know, I think it's something about the messages women get about economics, something about the way they perceive it only as a kind of gateway into a, a high-paid job. So I think we need to broaden people's understanding of what economists do and what economics is about. About. Lots of women are attracted by social sciences, but they do tend to choose sociology over economics or psychology over economics. So maybe they perceive that economics is more about money than human beings. So we'd like to reverse that and see if we can uh, do something to increase its popularity with women. Our thanks to Samir Keynes and Sarah Smith. And that's it for this week's Money Talks. Don't forget to get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio or by emailing radio at economist.com. In London, 
This is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.